Okay. Um, Genesis 24, then. It, last week we saw that Abraham did get a piece of the promised land. The way that he did end up owning a piece of the promised land was through the death of Sarah. And it was through the death of Sarah that Abraham was able to buy a parcel with a grave in it to bury his wife. Um, and she was buried in faith. And we saw that all the saints from, all, from that time on have died in faith. And that's the, that's the picture, or that's the purpose of tombstones outside of churches. So when you pass it, you would pass the people you knew. And you could say, this one died in faith as well. All of the patriarchs were buried in that tomb. Having not seen the promises, but greeted them from afar, Hebrews says. And that's where we are. Although the promises of God have been clarified, have been intensified and beautified throughout Scripture, we have not yet seen the full consummation of God's promises, but only greeted them from afar. And we wait for a heavenly kingdom. We wait for a new heavens and a new earth. And we trust that Christ will come again and make all things new. This week, and now that was the first aspect of the promise, land. And Abraham does in a very um, small way get a piece of the land. Another part of the promise was a line, remember? It's through your offspring. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, not only does God promise Abraham the land, he promises him the line. Um, a promised line, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through this line. That certainly reaches back to Genesis 3.15, when God promised Eve through your, your offspring will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. So you see God working out that promise in the family of Abraham. So the question today is this. How will God's promised line continue? Abraham is getting old. Sarah has already passed away. Um, and Isaac is Abraham's only child and he does not yet have a wife to carry on the line that is what this chapter is about now I want you to bear with me in this chapter this is not going to be an especially especially long sermon I'm not saying that but I want you to bear with me as I read this chapter because this is the longest chapter in Genesis um, and this is going to take eight minutes for me to read but bear with me if you could read along that would be very helpful um, and as you read along ask yourself or are, don't even ask yourself see the kind of obedience in the servant that Abraham commissions because that is exemplary for a child of God for a servant of the Lord. Now, so read with me Genesis 24. <clears throat> now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, 
And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, The oldest of his house, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand, hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac there. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under his thigh, uh, under the thigh of his master Abraham, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city well by the water at the time of evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to your master, uh, to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out to water her jar, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. And she went to the spring and filled her, her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they are finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all the camels. The men gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten golden shekels. And she said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said, I am the daughter of Bethuel 
the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder, and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about all these things. And Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out to meet the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebekah his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and the place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. Speak on. At this point in the story, the servant literally recaps everything that has happened so far. Abraham sending him, him praying to God, the fact that when he went to the well, the woman came and fed the, uh, gave the camels water. So he reiterates the entire story. And so I want to go down to... Um, Verse 49, where he, where he sums up and gets to the matter. In verse 49, he says, Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban Bethuel, and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her, take her and go. And let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord had spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night. And when they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prepared my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent Rebekah, their sister, her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of him who hates him. Then Rebekah, her young women, arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. 
Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Laha Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all these things. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and she loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, the question is this. We're seeing redemptive history play out in mundane events. But the question is this. How will God's promises be brought about? His promises for the line to be brought about before he dies. Um, he's only greeted the land from afar, but how will his line be continued? Carl, you want to shut that door for me? Yeah. Thank you, brother. Um, how will the promises of God be continued? I'll tell you one thing that you see in this passage. It will not be continued by God's people assimilating into the surrounding culture. Right? Abraham is very clear. Do not get a wife for my son Isaac from the Canaanites. Go to my country and kindred. So we know for a fact it's not a matter of Abraham assimilating into culture. So how would God provide a wife to Isaac? It would be through Abraham's own bloodline. The question, the bigger question is this. This sets a pattern. This is kind of a pattern setting text for the Bible, which we see repeated throughout scripture. The question is how do God's promises continue in the world? Answer, they continue through a commission. They continue through God's providence, working through obedience, and they continue unto a final marriage. That's how God's promises will continue, through a commission, through God's providence, working through obedience, and that will all culminate in a final marriage. Let's look at the text just for a few minutes and see how this plays out. First of all, the commission. Abraham, and what is probably an uncomfortable thing for many of you to read, says to the servant, put your hand under my thigh. Now, if you think this means something more than is actually in the text, you're right. This is a euphemism for something else in the Hebrew um, Understanding. This is not the thigh, this is the genitals. So, in a court of law, you put your hand on a Bible, right? That means that what you're going to say 
is true and you understand the weightiness of what you're bringing forward. So you're, you're, you're taking an oath on the Bible. In this time, and especially in the context of Abraham, it is the seed of Abraham that's in question here. And so, putting the hand on the thigh, on the genitals, symbolized the oath of carrying on Abraham's seed. That this servant is actually commissioned to carry on the seed of Abraham through his mission to find a wife for Isaac. So, placing the hand on the thigh, i.e. the genitals, is, is, means this is momentous and it has to do with God's promises and I am sending you out to bring to fruition what God's promises and plan are for this line, Abraham's line. And Abraham is very adamant, very adamant, that he not take a wife from the Canaanites. He said in verse, in verse 5, very interesting. So don't bring my child back there. Don't bring Isaac back to the land of the Canaanites. And the servant asks a very legitimate question in, in verse 5. Well, perhaps a woman won't be willing to follow me to the land. Maybe I could take Isaac so that she could actually see her husband. And Abraham is very adamant and says in verse 6, See to it that you do not take my son back there. So he is insistent that Isaac not go back to the land, lest he leave the promised land. And he is very insistent that Isaac not marry a Canaanite. Abraham then displays very great confidence in the Lord, I think. In verse 7, he answers his servant and says that the God of heaven, who took from me my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son Isaac there. Abraham is trusts in right here in God's supervision that God would send his angel before the servant to prepare the way. The angel being an emissary, almost sometimes interchangeable with the presence of Yahweh himself. But God would send an emissary before him to prepare the way. I, I, heard, I heard one teacher talk about how he prays in the morning. I've kind of adopted this as a habit. But he prays that the Lord would go before him that day and prepare his way. And I think that's a great model, a great way to start your day. That I would go with the Lord and that he would go before me to prepare my way. So Abraham's very, very sure that the Lord is going to carry out his promises in this mission. Um... Here's, here's a pattern I see right from here. The pattern of Abraham not accepting is not accept Abraham does not accept anything from the Canaanites ever. In chapter 14, remember the, the one of the kings says, well you, you, you won this battle 
and you saved my men, the king of Sodom. So you, you have the, the booty. You have the, the gold, the, the silver. You take all of that. And Abraham said, no, I'm not going to do that, lest the people say that you have made Abraham rich. In the last chapter, we saw him refusing to take the parcel of land for free. He insisted on payment. So this, this sets a pattern throughout biblical history that God's people will be in the world, but not of the world. They will live in the world, but they will not partake or receive from the world. Now, in context and in the Old Testament, that distinction of God's people and the world was biological. Um, and that's why Isaac must not marry a Canaanite because there's a biological distinction between God's people and the people of the world. Um, Lot, remember Lot? He assimilated into his surrounding. He assimilated into the world. And actually, he had his daughters being ready to be married off to the men of Sodom. But this is not the case with Abraham. He makes a distinction between himself, his family, and the world based on God's promises. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, there is a distinction between God's people, but it's not biological. It's a spiritual distinction. And that's right from the get-go in Jesus' ministry, something we always quote in this church, be salt and light. You're a city on a hill. There is something distinct about you. You have the Holy Spirit residing within you. And so this is why Christians, it is our duty and our task to live a life of worship and obedience where it is very clear that our lives have been brought under the direction of God's holiness and power. Personally, in our families, in our workplaces, that we are distinct from the world. There's a spiritual distinction. Um, and I think that over the course of time, that should be very evident in our lives. Now, one thing, um, as far as assimilation into the world, be very, very careful about how the world tries to assimilate itself into us. The world tries to assimilate itself into God's people mainly through art and entertainment today. Mainly through entertainment. And so the notes, we were just talking about this in Bible study, or um, men's group the other day. Um, the ideology of the world is expressive individualism. Where in order to find your true identity or your true self, you must look within yourself to find your true self. And once I've found my true self, I must bring my whole self into conformity with my true self. So it's your identity, your reason for existing, according to the world, is to stand in direct relation to yourself. It's a very self-oriented way of, of viewing things. And so cue every single Disney movie about 
like we talked about, a woman, usually a woman or, or, or somebody who is held down from being their true selves, and that's because there's some hateful um, people above her, usually a patriarchy or an ununderstanding father, who doesn't realize that she needs to break out and find this freedom. And once she does, the father figure turns and has a salvation experience where he now realizes where he was wrong. That is our culture trying to assimilate in very subtle ways its expressive individualism into the world. Um, the point of the Christian is not to stand in relation to himself. I told you that in Nyack, when I was in college in Nyack, um, I, I know I've told you this before, but I'll, I'll say it again. The, the, um, the speaker ended his talk, great talk about holiness, but he talked about the fact that the, the world will always tell you, be who you are. And he said, why would you want to be who you are? Be who Christ is. That has stuck with me my whole life. Why would I want to be who I am? Incomplete? Sinful? <laughs> a dull mind? A cold heart? Why would I want to be that? Be who Christ is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is a command to bring the whole self into conformity with God. To direct one's heart, soul, mind, and strength to the Lord, not to oneself. My heart and soul is who I am on the inside. My mind is what I think. My strength is what I do. Bring those three aspects into alignment with God. Just like Christ did, who is God himself, and we are being conformed into his image. God has always wanted his people to be like him. Not to... So, it, I want to say like three things at the same time. But Christian growth is not, I think John Piper said this, is not like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. It's not like that. It's more like sighting in a rifle or uh, a bow and arrow, hitting the mark. To sin, hamartia, is to what? Miss the mark. Holiness godliness Christ likeness is to hit the mark and that's what we're aiming for and so when Jesus says you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect he is talking about the goal the standard for the Christian life is to be like the father he's not talking about as it's often been misunderstood sinless perfection he's talking about the standard of life and conduct it's not ourself it's God. You must be perfect. That's the standard Christ sets. It's God himself. You must be holy, for I am holy. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of Christ. So, bringing ourselves into conformity with who God is, not assimilating ourselves into the world. You see, there's a difference. There is a distinction between God's people and the world because of what I am conforming myself to. <laughs> Carl Truman, um, church historian, said that expressive individualism has now brought our culture to a point. Ex 
expressive individual being where you find your true self has brought our culture to a point where the sentence I am a woman trapped in a man's body is perfectly coherent and a cogent thing to say whereas 50 years ago that wouldn't have even registered it doesn't that doesn't even make sense in fact if you went to a psychologist they would say they would try to bring your your uh, what do I want what do I want to say here if you went to a psychologist they would try to bring your mind into conformity with your body because you're clearly not a woman trapped in a man's body today because of expressive individualism if you say I am a woman trapped in a man's body they will try to bring your body into conformity with your mind completely different today and it's because the identity is rooted in the self I need to go move on though um, the servant's obedience really quickly you can trace that through three movements um, does anyone want their kids to obey immediately when they tell them something to do I do <laughs> thank you that person who raised your hand I can't see you because I don't have my glasses on but um, I want my children to obey immediately and I want them to do it all the way when I tell them what to do so Nidia has been adopting a phrase she learned from some a Christian teacher but she says to the kids now and I love this she says when I tell you to do something I want you to do it right away all the way and with a smile that's how I want you to listen to me right away all the way and with a smile and the smile is important because sometimes they'll go pouting to try to like show us that they're unhappy so it's the rule in our house now is which we try to abide by is right away all the way and with a smile do it now the servant doesn't do it right away all the way with a smile he does it in three three movements though he follows his master in dependence upon God singularity of focus and in haste dependence singularity of focus and in haste first of all notice that the first thing he does when he gathers his crew to go down there is he prays to the Lord he, he is dependent on the Lord he says oh God of my master Abraham please grant me success today and show steadfast love to your master Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of men are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed to your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to your servant. So he it's like what James says. Don't go into a city and say, we will get gain and we will conquer, but say, if the Lord wills, we will go into such and such a city and get gain. It is dependent on the Lord's provision our entire lives. And so I love and appreciate and respect how the servant begins his task with prayer. It shows dependence on God. It shows piety and humility of heart and trust that God will make good on his promises to Abraham. Now, quickly, 
Verse 14 is perplexing to me, frankly, because he seems to impose a criteria upon God. He seems to say, listen, here's how I want you to do it, God. Let the woman who comes out be the one that is going to be Isaac's wife. I want to say that this is not a good model for prayer. It's not, I don't think we should impose a, a criteria to which God should approximate and then believe that he's in it. I think that's a dangerous habit to, to maintain. That does happen throughout scripture a few times. But I think I was greatly helped by John Calvin in preparing for this. So let me just read you his insights um, because it, it helped me. Um, don't forget the rule of prayer that Christ showed us is what? In the garden? Not my will, but thy will be done. Um, your kingdom come, your will be done. So that's the rule of prayer in according with to God's will. James right, rightly says, you have not because you ask not, and you ask and do not have because you ask upon your lusts. Right? The basis for my asking is my lust, my desire, my passion. The first thing we should do is hope, try to bring our prayer into conformity with God's will and ending our prayers saying, if it be according to your will. Now, the, uh, the servant says, though, you know, let this one, the one who comes down first and says, drink, and let her be the one that is my master's wife. Um, John Calvin says, the method which, seems, um, which he seems to use scarcely consists with the rule of prayer. For first, we know that no one prays aright unless he subjects his own wishes to God. Wherefore, there is nothing more unsuitable than to prescribe anything at our own will to God. So he's saying, if you, do, it's not right to prayer to pray like, if you love me, Lord, you'll do this. That's not the prayer of that Jesus shows us. So John Calvin goes on. He says, now since the servant prescribes to God what answer shall be given, he appears culpably to depart from the suitable modesty of prayer. God, however, in hearkening to his wish, proves by the event that the prayer was acceptable to himself. The general law by which all the pious are bound does not prevent the Lord when he determines to, to do something extraordinary from directing the minds of his servants towards it. Not that he would lead them away from his word, but only that he makes some peculiar concession to them. So you see what, what Calvin is saying? This is not the standard, um, but when God is doing something extraordinary throughout Scripture, he does seem to make a concession to people. Now, I want to prove this to you really briefly. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Now, it's... Uh, Understand what I'm not saying. 
I'm not saying that your prayers need to be always ordered perfectly and that prayers must be um, calculated and and um, wooden that's not what I'm saying it's good to cry to the Lord it's good to say to cast your cares on him there are groanings too deep for words and sometimes I remember throwing up my hands one time during a difficult time and said I don't even know what to do Lord I don't even know what and so I walked a mile around James Ollie Park telling the Lord I don't know what to do I think that's acceptable to God I'm not reeling at God I'm just showing my insufficiency my need for him and his guidance now um, what I'm trying to show here though is that God does make a concession for people when there are extraordinary events in redemptive history okay question for you if God tells you something should hap- is going to happen if he came down to you if an angel came down to you you walk out of service today and an angel comes down to you and tells you to do something or that something is going to happen should you believe it should you question God at all answer no you shouldn't you should just believe it if, if it is actually God coming down Again, I always feel like I have to qualify everything I say. Don't believe everything that your mind whispers to you. There's got to be a way to distinguish between the word of God and the word of Satan. How would one do that? The Bible, right? The word of God. But I'm talking about if God physically manifested himself and stood before you in his glory and spoke to you, you should believe him when he speaks. Now, God, um, one eighteen, Luke one eighteen. An angel appears before Zechariah, who is going to have John the Baptist. All right, and it says, "And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? How shall I know that I'm going to have a son?'" Because I am old, and my wife is old too. We're well advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time so I mean that seems almost like a legitimate how am I going to have a kid I'm, not, I'm, I'm an old man my wife's old how is this going to happen the angel said you are not, I'm going to make you dumb and not able to speak because you dared question the word of the Lord now John the Baptist is a great figure in history but you know who's even greater Christ Now, look at what Mary says to the angel in verse 34. The angel says, you're going to have a child. You're going to have Christ the Lord. And Mary 
in bewildered astonishment, gives the same exact reply that Zechariah did. And says, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. Now this is a momentous occasion. And as John Calvin noted, when God does something extraordinary, he seems to make concession for his saints. So Mary says, how is this going to be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's how it will happen. Do you see the point I'm making is because Mary was giving birth to the Christ himself. The Lord seemed to have made a concession for Mary's um, question, whereas he did not make that concession for Zechariah. So, in this passage that we're studying right now, as I see it, I think the Lord made a concession for the servant because he was involved in such a momentous occasion, i.e., carrying on the very line through which Christ would be born through his mission. So, to wrap that all up, I don't think this is an appropriate prayer to always pray, to impose a law upon God and say, if God, if you're in this, you're going to make this happen. And this is exactly how you're going to do it. You're going to, you're going to do this, 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 and that. And then I'll know. I don't think that's appropriate. Um, yet God concedes. He makes a concession for this servant because of the momentous occasion that it is. That's my opinion. If you disagree with me, let's talk afterwards. And uh, I am always open to being proven wrong. Um, now, he does it with dependence on God. He does it with singularity of focus as well. In verse 33, they give food to him, to him, and they invite him to stay. And what does he say? He says, I will not eat until I say what I have to say. I love that. He doesn't even put food to his mouth until he says, says what he has to say. So he's a man on a mission. I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And they said, speak on. And then from verse 34 to 49, he reiterates everything that happens. He, reiter he reiterates the master's commission. He reiterates his prayer. He reiterates how Rebecca came and watered his camels according to his prayer. So he gives context to exactly what happens. It reminds me so much of Paul reiterating exactly what happened to him on the Damascus Road three times in the book of Acts, the whole story. Or Peter, when the great um, sheet was let down and the whole story, almost word for word, is reiterated when he arrives. So that you always, this is almost a pattern in history where almost painstakingly context is given as to why they're here. So he does it in dependence on God. He is obedient with singularity of focus. And finally, he does it with haste. In verse 55, Laban said, um, 
Let the, let, let the young woman remain with us a little while before you take her. I mean, you just stayed the morning. Let her remain a little while, at least ten days, and then, then you may go on. Now, by way of side note, if you know anything about Laban, he will always try to delay God's people. He will try, and he will successfully delay Jacob for 20 years in his home. So he is a delayer of God's people, it seems. And here he tries to delay. And what does the servant say? With singularity of focus, he says, um, Do not delay me. Since the word, since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. The man does not eat until he speaks what he has to say. He gives the exact context for why he is here, and he does it with haste and does not delay. So his eye is single. He is seeking first the commission of his master. Ministers, I'm speaking to myself and those of you who may be called to some form of ministry, especially pastoral ministry. Paul tells Timothy that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. I'm not worried about culture. All right. I I care about you know, I want to be a good citizen. I want to do my duty in voting. But I'm not going to sit here and wring my hands over culture. And I don't think you should either. Let, let culture do what culture has always done, which is defy God. And then let us joyfully show a different and better way of life. Let us show what a kingdom of righteousness, joy, and peace looks like in a lost and dying world. Let us have on our mouth not how horrible the world is, but how good God is, and how, how he has sent his son, and that we can be brought into cooperation with God's joy and peace. You can enter the kingdom now through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. And you can bring yourself into alignment with God's will. This is good news. We're good news people. We can be, and we get to repent, as I've said before. It's a joyful thing to turn from meaninglessness and a life which is self-focused to a life that is Godward and heavenward and eternal. It's a good thing. Let culture do what culture does. Yes, it's, al it's always been sinful. But our hope is steadfast. Our hope is sure. And our kingdom is secure. So let's move forward with confidence in the Lord. And not worry about culture. No, no soldier, like this servant, gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Finally, you have um, marriage. Verse 58. They called Rebecca. And said, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. And so she went. And she left her father and mother. And did not turn back. And in verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent. 
of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so the line is continued. The promise line, God's promise line, is continued by a commission, by the obedience of a servant, culminating in a marriage. Now, what does that remind you of? I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of where we are right now. We have a great commission from the Master. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And we do it with we carry out this mission, as I just said, with singularity of focus, knowing that there is a lost and dying world, but being vigilant and knowing that God's hand is in, he is providentially working these things out. Um, he is providentially bringing his people to himself through our obedience, right? This is obedience is folded into God's causality. So while God is providentially working out the promise line in this passage, he is providentially bringing his people to himself through the preaching of the word and making disciples and healthy churches, which is where disciples are made. And it is a picture of Christ in the church, right? Um, Turn with me to Ephesians 5.25. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that she, he might present her the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So the marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And we see this marriage of Isaac and Rebekah forecasting and foreshadowing the bride of Christ being brought to Christ himself. In Revelation 21, 2, the great vision that John sees, he says, And I saw the holy city representing the saints. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We are in the same place as this servant. We have a commission. We trust that God will providentially bring about his will. We prayerfully go about it, joyfully trusting without delay, joyfully trusting God's um, providence in these things, in our mission, in the ministry of this church as well. And we believe that one day the church will be brought to Christ as the bride of Christ and the dwelling place of God will be with the dwelling place of man. All things, Jesus said, 
You search the scripture because in them you think you have life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And we see even in this story, the bride being prepared for her husband. Let's close in a word of prayer.